Well, as we come to this close of, uh, of Genesis, Genesis uh, 47, end of 47, on 50, uh, we have three sermons planned left, this one next week and the following. Um, as I said last week, there's a sort of addendums or closing things being said, and yet there's some significant truths and important things in this text of Scripture, even though it might at first appear to be just like, okay, yeah, so he dies and we move on. In fact, today's sermon might be a little bit different because it's not so much going to focus on the story as, I think, some really profound and important practical theology within the blessing of Jacob to Joseph's sons. As we approach the conclusion of our study, we note in the latter half, you could say, of Genesis has been about Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And if you noticed, um, Isaac and Joseph really are sort of subsets of the study of the lives of Abraham and Jacob. Uh, Joseph's story, or the Jacob story, sorry, begins in, the, in Genesis with Abraham's death. And the Joseph story really concludes, for the most part, with Jacob's death. So why is this? Why not have the lives of all of them? Well, it's significant because Abraham, the point of the Genesis narratives of these patriarchs is not the lives of these people. The point is Jesus Christ. The point is bringing us to the Messiah who would come through them. And so it's significant that Abraham is the one through whom God chooses to birth the, the, the family, to birth the individuals through whom the Messiah will come. And Jacob is the next big development because he's the one whom God uses to build the nation through whom the Messiah will come. And so we have the father, uh, the family builder, and the nation builder sort of is the theme here. And that's why we have the significance in Jacob in Genesis, which is odd, isn't it? Morally speaking, Jacob seems to be the least impressive of all of them. Maybe, though, that's not a defect in the story. Perhaps that's significant to the story. Perhaps it is significant that God chose Jacob, with all of his sins easily publicly displayed for all to see, to say, and that's who I'm going to build my nation through. The least. Uh, the one we don't really like to put in our family tree, as it were. And so we see from Jacob, his name is turned to Israel, and then the tribes develop from him. We looked at how they got into Egypt. That's the story of Joseph. Now they're in Egypt, and we have Jacob's final words to his sons and grandsons. Now, the final words of Jacob occupy chapter 48, what we just read. It's a short section there, but it's describing the whole thing. Chapter 49 uh, before we get done with that. It is the longest last words of anyone in the Bible. So we have more about Jacob's last words than anyone. And it's significant. It's not just a little add-on on the end. It's significant. Now what happens in our text that we're looking at today, next week we're going to look at the words to his 12 tribes or the 12 sons, this week just to Joseph in this deathbed scene, moving deathbed scene. And Moses, as he obviously 
often does, arranges the account in a mini chiasm where we have Jacob blessing Joseph in the first seven verses and then Jacob blessing Joseph at the very end. But the bulk of the text is about Jacob blessing Joseph's two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so that's where the bulk of it is, the main part of the text. But where we find, before we get to 48, the setting is found in, in the end of 47, 27 through 31. And here we have uh, Jacob, who is described as being on his deathbed 147 years old. So an old man, uh, ready to, to be done with life, is described in a very normal, but we might say pitiful scene. He has to rise from the bed and he leans on the bed and he can move very much. Hebrews will say that in this time when he finally gets up, he's leaning on his staff. And so you get the idea that when he 17 years ago told Joseph, I'm old, my days are few and evil. 17 years later, you can imagine he feels even more like his days are short and evil-er. Okay, you get the idea that like, okay, so it's, it's coming, the day is coming. But then you have this funny little scene, um, sort of human, uh, comically humanly speaking, in that you have Jacob at the end of chapter 47, like, ah, oh, bless Joseph, I saw Joseph one more time. Let me close my eyes in death, worship leaning on the bed. And then 48, later, Jacob is sick. <laughs> like, I thought, yeah, it's like, well, it's a good day to die. Well, not I guess today, maybe tomorrow. And some time elapses. We don't know how much time elapses before between 47 and 48 because it's two scenes here. Joseph comes to say goodbyes. He goes home and dad's still kicking. And so at some point he goes to say his goodbyes again when it seems like, well, he's sick this time. It's really going to happen. And then he has the strength to bless the sons, the grandsons, and all the tribes. And then at some point, he dies. So we don't know when these events happen. We know they probably happen just before his death. At least 48 does. All right, that sets the scene a little bit. But I want to just pause for a moment to talk about the deathbed scene before the blessing in chapter 47. First, a note, kind of housekeeping note. Several people have actually asked me about, like, why do we see him called Israel sometimes and Jacob other times? Whereas you don't see that with Abraham. He was Abram, and then he was Abraham. You don't see that with, in the New Testament with Saul and Paul, right? He was Saul, now he's called Paul after Damascus Road. Why to go back and forth? Um, if you study it carefully, you find out it appears quite random. And it doesn't seem to have a whole lot of meaning in other words, God speak, calls him Jacob at times when he's doing well and serving the Lord. And so it's not every time he calls him Jacob, he's reminding him of his past. And he sometimes calls him Israel. And it's just, it seems to actually interact quite a bit and just kind of a back and forth. I think it's more literary than anything else. But also we can understand Israel is not so much that God changed Jacob's proper name. Israel is the title he becomes God's, God's princely warrior. And the reason it's a title is it's passed on to the entire nation. So we didn't just, they weren't called, all of Abraham's children weren't called Abraham. But they are all called Israel afterwards. So it's more of a title than it is a personal name. A position that Jacob now possesses as God's prince who fights. 
and his offspring will be God's princes who fight, is the idea of the name change. So let's quick note that because it says in the text Israel, and then a few verses down it's going to say Jacob. Here he is, laying on his deathbed. Joseph comes to see him. The time draws near that Israel must die. He calls Joseph, and he does this very weird but very cultural thing of calling Joseph to put his hand under his thigh. Remember that Abraham did this when he had his servant go get a bride for Isaac, and it's sort of a uh, picturesque way of saying uh, the, the God who gives offspring, the God who is the God of my fertility, swear by him, the God who gives the seed that he so chooses. And so usually when this is used, this sort of ancient form of a vow, it's looking toward the future. And that's what's going on here, looking toward the future, a promise for the future. And the main thing he wants him to promise is this, don't bury me in Egypt. It's not because Egypt didn't have fantastic tombs and plots where they could see the beautiful pyramids or whatever. It's that Jacob in his deathbed is saying, I don't belong here. I belong where God's promises are. His dying words to his son is, bury me in the land God promised me. Like I said, Jacob is not a super impressive person throughout his life, but he dies well. He dies as a Christian, a believer. And one of the signs of this is that even in his death, he's holding on to the promises of God. He's not holding on to his life. He's holding on to the life that God promised for him. So he says, bury me in Israel. By the way, Joseph will learn from this. And later we're going to read Joseph says the same thing to his sons. And he says, no, swear it to me. Joseph says, okay, dad. Yes, we'll bury you in in Canaan, the land God promised to you. And in this, it says that Jacob then, Israel, bowed himself on the head of his bed. Now that either means that he lost all strength and he sort of like fell over, or it could mean that this is a fulfillment that even the sun and the moon will bow down to Joseph. In the end, Jacob bows down with Joseph there. Or I think probably most likely this is, his fine, this is his act of worship. He's bowing himself before God. The promises are sure. I worship and rest in him. Side note, of all the things I hope for my life is that when I come to the end, that I end it worshiping. Now that could mean that God takes me while I'm preaching in the pulpit here. <laughs> or singing with you all. And I'd be fine with that, though you may not. It'd be traumatic. Um, whatever, however I go, I want to go worshiping, bowing on my bed, the God who has promised me eternal land in Canaan, in heaven, forever. And that's how Joseph, Jacob wants to go and seeks to go out. So then he doesn't die. Some time passes, and now he's sick in chapter 48, he called, Joseph hears that he's sick, and this is time it's real. It's going to happen now. So Joseph brings his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. I don't know how old they are. They're probably older than little children. They're probably not very quite old as young men. They're probably in that adolescent middle ages there. But he brings his two sons, born in Egypt, to him, Manasseh the oldest and Ephraim the youngest. Why does he bring them? It's not just to say goodbye to grandpa. This is a common 
uh, cultural Hebrew practice for the, the father, the grandfather, to bless the next generation. And Joseph wants his grandsons to have a blessing. But Joseph is going to experience something he did not expect. And that's what we're going to look at here in this, this chapter 48. So what happens? Well, he brings them in. And in the first section, Jacob looks at Joseph, dim insight, and he blesses Joseph. And he blesses him with the same uh, expression that Abraham used, Isaac used, God Almighty has given me promises. He appeared to me in Luz, or that's Bethel. Remember when he promised him before Jacob even loved God, when he wanted nothing to do with him, God still promised him. And that's what he holds on to, the promises of God. If Jacob were holding on to his righteousness, he wouldn't have appealed to the time when he was unrighteous. But he appeals to the promise of God as his hope. And so he appeals to Bethel, that scene. And then he blesses Joseph, not Manasseh Ephraim, but Joseph. And he blesses him and says, God will multiply you and make of you a great nation. Very similar to the Abrahamic and Isaac and now Jacob and then eventually uh, Hebrew blessing, an everlasting possession. But then he focuses on Ephraim and Manasseh and a slight shift is made even in Jacob's dialogue because Manasseh is the oldest and he's mentioned as the oldest first when it says Joseph brought Manasseh and Ephraim. But now from here on out, whenever a phrase is used, Jacob says, Ephraim and Manasseh. And he reverses them, kind of, he knows what he's about to do. This isn't a mistake. And so he says, and bless them, those were born to you in Egypt. And then he says this fascinating thing. He says, I want you to know, Joseph, they are mine. And, and I don't know what Joseph thought of this, but I wonder if he said, um, no, they're, they're mine, <laughs> Dad. You know, you're a little old, you don't understand. They are mine. This is, you know, they are mine as Reuben and Simeon. Now, why does that matter? Reuben is the firstborn, Simeon is the secondborn. What he's essentially doing is he is replacing the right of firstborn with Joseph's two sons. So if you're to order the firstborn, the age of uh, not necessarily in number, but in status, Israel should put Ephraim, Manasseh, uh, Levi, Reuben, and Simeon and Reuben get on the bottom. Or sorry, Judah, I said, I should have said Judah instead of Reuben, kind of go to the bottom in status. This is a great blessing. From a human perspective, Joseph still is favorite. And they get this section, this idea of adopted. Now, so like he's dying, they're adopting. Well, because we're, we misunderstand the concept. We don't have a very strong concept of inheritance in our culture, our Western culture, like they do. And the idea here is that Ephraim and Manasseh, the two sons of Joseph, or Joseph, as they're often be described as both of them together as Joseph, they essentially become tribal leaders. There are tribes that are going to come from them. There are more children that are born to Joseph, apparently, after this time. There are more children that are probably born to all of the, the sons of Israel. It says that they're sons and daughters. What's important about these particular ones? Not that they are better personally than any of the other people born in this family. The family is going to grow into a great multitude. But that they will become the standard bearers, the 12 or if you're counting, sometimes 13, uh, counting Joseph with Ephraim and Manasseh, 
the standard bearers of Israel, the possessors of land, the ones through whom all the other members of Israel will find their roots in. And Ephraim and Manasseh shouldn't have that. They should, it should be Joseph, and then they're sort of under him. But they're going to come up and be replaced, essentially replace Joseph with two slots of tribal leadership. And that's what this is about. And a side note, I know that I don't have time for this um, today, but I could not read They Are Mine and not run to the beauty of adoption in the New Testament. When God says to his people, you are mine, you are mine, the possession, the blessing that flows. Well, most of, however, what what takes place in this text uh, happens now with this particular blessing. So then Jacob says, so now, okay, I've said all that, who are these? Now people say, well, did he already forget who they were? Is he old? That could be the case situation here, but I think this is more of a title. So like, so who are they? Bring the candidates forward. And Joseph responds, there's the sons. And Joseph knows what he's doing. He's a very culturally uh, aware individual. And so he takes the oldest Manasseh and he puts him with his, with his left hand next to uh, Jacob's right hand, the right hand of blessing, the firstborn blessing. And he takes Ephraim and puts him next to, with his right hand, puts him next to Jacob's left hand. And so, blind Jacob does this and blesses Ephraim with his right hand and Manasseh with his left hand. Now, we're going to read a little bit about, we're going to talk about the blessing itself, but just from that, let's just jump past that. Joseph goes, no, (laughs) you're doing it wrong. Uh, and it says he's very displeased. No, that's not the right way. That's not the natural way to do it. That's not the family way. That's not the tradition, Dad. And I love Jacob's response. I know. I know what I'm doing. Okay, he knows what he's doing. I know what I'm doing. Manasseh's going to be great, but Ephraim's going to be greater. So why? Why does this happen? Well, first of all, it has actually quite the tradition. Isaac is blessed rather than Ishmael, who was older. Jacob is blessed rather than Esau, who was older. And now Ephraim is blessed rather than Manasseh, who is older. So, whether Jacob has divine insight, like God told him this, or we don't know all of that, but he actually is following the tradition of his fathers, right? This is the normal way of doing it that's abnormal. The deeper reason why is a little bit harder to ascertain. Why was Isaac chosen over Ishmael? Well, we could, we have some reason, well, because... Sarah was promised. Okay, yes, so that one we can make sense of. But then when you come to Jacob and Esau, why was Jacob chosen over Esau? Same mom and dad, same covenant promise, but why Jacob over Esau? The same answer to that one, I believe, answers why Ephraim over Manasseh. And Paul tells us in the book of Romans, that the reason for Jacob over Esau 
is so that the grace of God according to election would stand. Basically to say, don't you know that God determines the blessing? And all the traditions and natural insights of man and the perspectives, well, this person, they should be, God says, yeah, that's what you would think. But I say this one. I choose this one. But that person, oh man, they would make a great Christian. They're just good to their family and upright and make lots of money. They could just solve world missions problems. I choose the prostitute to be mine. But look at the Pharisees. They're so astute and the scribes know so much Bible. I choose the tax collector, follow me. The fishermen, follow me. That the grace of God according to election might stand. Why does God choose? Why did God through Isaac choose Jacob over Esau? Why did God through Jacob choose Ephraim over Manasseh? I think it's just to continually teach us this truth. That God is God and we are not. And he often uses the weak things of the world to confuse the wise. And the unimpressive, the ordinary, the strange, so that the glory would be all of God and not of man. And I think that's why he chooses Ephraim over Manasseh. Well, then he also encourages in the immediate, says, don't worry, Manasseh's going to have a big family too. But what comes from this historically is that Ephraim actually becomes the largest by population tribe in Israel. Not the faithful tribe, but the largest. He multiplies. The promise of the Messiah is still through Judah, but Ephraim is abundantly multiplied. In fact, Ephraim will become at times by the prophets a designation for all of Israel. Kind of a title for all of them sometimes. Ephraim is a reference to all of them. So whatever's going on here, at least we can say, Jacob seems to know what he's doing, but God certainly knows what he's doing. And so Ephraim is blessed over Manasseh. And then in the end, the end of chapter 48, uh, he turns back to Joseph and he says, okay, I'm dying. And I love the ending. I'm just going to read it here. These are the, aside from the blessings, these are sort of the last words uh, of the Father. Behold, I am dying. Verse 21, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. God will be with you. His presence was with me and I no longer will be with you. But God will still be with you and he'll lead you back. Tomorrow? No, it's going to be a couple hundred years but he will lead you back. Verse 22 is a little bit unique. So he says, so I've given you, Joseph, one portion above your brothers. What's that mean? Well, land portion is probably what that means because he then talks about a land portion. Um, how does he do that? Well, Manasseh and Ephraim, they both get land portion. So there's one above his brothers. Um, but then he says that I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. 
And we have nothing in the Bible to describe a battle that Jacob had with the Amorite that he took with his sword and his bow. But then again, we have a lot of things that happened in 147 years that we don't have a record of. So that's, that's not a problem. However, most scholars think that he may be referring uh, to the land of Shechem, that of course became desolate after Reuben and or Levi and Simeon destroyed everybody in there. They think that because there's a play on words with the word Shechem in the, in the idea of here of the, the portion. And then also, that's where Joseph's bones are buried today. You can see his tomb in Shechem, modern, where, where Shechem is. You can't go to it. It's one of the most hostile uh, terrorist cells in the whole Middle East. You can view it from a distance, but you can see where it is. And so most think that's what he's referring to as the land of Shechem. And we do know that Ephraim actually, that's the center part in the tribal area is that region that he goes into as well. So you have the last words, but what I want to focus our time on is verses 15 through 16, the blessing that he gives to Joseph's sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. He gives these to both of the sons. This isn't just to Ephraim. And you can divide, you can divide, divide the blessing up in threes. So first he gives three foundational descriptions of God. And then three desires as patriarch for his offspring. The three desires for his offspring I'm going to focus on, and then we're going to spend the most of our time remaining in talking about the three descriptions of God. I think there are some sweet and encouraging truths for us in that. So the, the, three, the three desires for his boys, bless the lads. In what way? Well, he says, first of all, that they would let my name, that'd be Israel, be upon them. That's his desire. Now, the fact that he says that is not Jacob saying, I want them to never forget me. I want to make sure that they, if they, if they had the ability for um, home movies that they're always watching about and remember an old Jacob, old Grandpa Jacob. It's not that. He's, he's looking at the name Israel. And what he is essentially saying, because it literally says, let uh, my name, and it says, let them carry my name, or let them bear my name in the, in the Hebrew there. So wherever they go, he wants people to say, that's Israel. That's Israel. That's Israel. He wants them to say, isn't that God's prince? Aren't those God's princes? Aren't, aren't they his people? The people of God? That's what he wants, first of all. And then he says, and let the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, be upon them. And they look like Abraham. And they act like Isaac. Courageous, faithful. So he wants them to carry the name of Israel and carry the name of uh, the fathers, the heritage, the family connection. And then finally, a very obvious one that is said for all of the blessings Essentially, let them grow into a multitude. And I want them to be great. To realize the covenant promise of God. Now, if we were to speak of this as an analogy that carries on even past their lifetimes and even the nation of Israel, I think we could actually say that this is a very significant and perhaps 
helpful blessing. What do, what do, what do believing parents want for their children? What do, desi- what do they desire upon them? What would they pray that God would bless them with? Well, I'll tell you, as a believing parent, that I would want my children, first and foremost, to bear the name of true Israel. That is, the true Israel is Christ. I want them to bear the name Christ. I want them to be Christian, to bear Christ's name. Second thing I want from them is I want them to bear the name of the faithful and courageous who have gone before them, Abraham and Isaac, Sarah and Naomi, Moses and Miriam, Isaiah and Jeremiah and and Mary and Elizabeth and Zechariah and Hezekiah and John the Baptist and, and my believing parents and those grandparents, the courageous faithfulness of the, those who have gone before, I want them to bear that too. I want them to bear the name of Christ and I want them to walk like Hebrews 11 describes, to walk with Christ. And follow Christ, follow those out there who follow Christ. And then thirdly, I want them to fully realize the covenant promise of God. That is, I not only do I want them to be Christian, but I want them to hear, well done, when they enter into the eternal reward won them by Christ. I want them to bear the fullness of God's promises and to live with the fullness of God's promise on them. I think every believing parent would agree with me that Jacob's blessing is what we desire for our children and grandchildren. But the foundation, what undergirds the hopes and dreams and desires that Jacob has for the next generation is who God is. And so, in three ways, he describes three very profound And I think we're going to see very basic but important descriptions of who God is and what God does. The reason we can hope in God is because He is these three things. The first thing, He says, the God before whom my fathers walked, Abraham and Isaac. What does that mean? Well, He's describing Abraham and Isaac as walking. That's just a normal biblical concept for living life. All the life they lived, they walked before, literally, in the face of God. There's a Latin phrase that we often use, corum Deo, in the presence, in the face of God. And he says, the God before whom my fathers walked. Now, what is he saying here? Is he emphasizing Abraham and Isaac in their faith? I don't think so. Because, you see, Abraham lived 175 years, and he died. But God didn't. Isaac lived 180 years, and he died. God didn't. Jacob has lived 147 years, and he will soon die but God won't. In other words, he is speaking and he is basing his hope in God's immortal, unchanging nature. They walk and God is there. 
They walk, and God is there. And this person walks, and God is there, and God is there, and God is there, and God, and he, he doesn't change. And he's like, he's always in front. Whoever's walking, and the different people walking, and where they go might change, but one thing stays the same throughout all of history, and that is the creator doesn't change. Change is a feature of a created being, a created thing. Unchanging nature is the feature of the creator. And Jacob is implying, if not explicitly stating, that my fathers walked and always in front of them was God, unmovable, unshaking, unchangeable, immortal, the all-wise God. The steadfastness of who God is is the hope of Jacob on his deathbed and for the coming generation. You see, God neither changes for the worse nor does he change for the better. If he were to change for the worse, that would imply imperfection that he has slipped into. If he were to grow or change for the better, that would imply some imperfection that he left behind. But the fact that God does not change is because he is perfect and he was and is and always will be. Any change implies imperfection on either end. But he's unchanging. He is simple. He is pure act. He is unmoved by the changes of his creation. He is not unnerved by the variety of men. So thus God reveals himself to Moses, not as I was or I will be, but as I am. I am, I'm present, I am always what I am. What God is, he always was, and what he is, he always will be. To say that God is unchanging is not saying that God, does not act, that God doesn't act uniquely or differently in time and place. Maybe a weak illustration, but an illustration nonetheless. A parent who's truly consistent in their purpose and character might have different rules for their different children. Might have a curfew at this time for one and a curfew for this time at another. That does not imply change within the parent. It implies change within the child. And the changeless is constructing the right place for that particular changing creature. So, in the scripture, you might find examples of God speaking to Moses in a burning bush. The fact that he spoke to Moses in a burning bush and then later spoke to Moses on a mountain and then later spoke through priests and prophets does not mean that God changed. He didn't change. The method by which he delivered to different people did change. And so today we say God speaks to us in the written word of God, given to us, revealed to us, settled. We're not saying that, well, now, now since God is unchanging, he's got to keep talking in burning bushes. We're saying, no, he speaks and this is how he speaks to us today. It's not a record of his unchangingness or his changingness that he would change how he speaks. Or he once said, these people, I want them to eat these foods. And now these people can eat whatever foods they want. 
He didn't change. The people changed. (laughs) So what do we mean when he is unchangeable? We don't mean that God doesn't do things in a, you might say, um, personalized pattern for each individual. We are saying that God in his character, his nature, his essence, who he is, never changes. He is, and here's another word, word, impassable. That means he's not moody. He's not up and down and changing and one day happy and the next day sad. In fact, might I say, this would imply for us, brothers and sisters, that wrath is not even an attribute of God. Wrath is how the unbelievers, the wicked experience his unchanging righteousness. And mercy is how the righteous experience his unchanging righteousness. So we should not look at God and say, oh, he's angry here, but he's not over here. He's not changing. He's righteous. He's just. He's love. He's truth. And that doesn't change. How we might experience that might look different depending on who we are, but not because of who he is. The point for this important theological point, the practical element here just today Beloved, you can have the same confidence in life and in death that God's divine nature, his holy character, his righteousness, his justice, his goodness, and his grace does not ebb and flow, grow and retreat. Who he was to your fathers, he is to you today and will be towards your children. So rest with confidence in God's timeless and unchanging character and nature. That's what Jacob is doing. He's resting in the God who was there when my fathers walked and the God who is there now, and the God who will be. He is transcendent. But then notice the next phrase, the God who fed me all my life. In the Hebrew there, the word fed is shepherd. Now, feed is a good translation because the primary responsibility of the shepherd is feeding. But it may not get the whole picture of the tender care and strength being implied here. So Jacob moves from the God who was there when my fathers walked to now, and the God who for me, he gets personal now. All my life, he shepherded me. Now, does Jacob mean, and because he fed me and shepherded me all my life, man, it was a good life. I didn't struggle, I didn't suffer, I didn't ever feel, I was hungry, I was never, there were never any famines that drove me into Egypt. Obviously, he's not saying that, right? He's describing the shepherdly provision presence of God. So he's not saying he kept the famine away. He said he's keeping me through the famine. He's not saying that he kept me from from dangerous times and people, even my own sons. He's saying, but he kept me even in my grief and in my sorrow and my pain and my struggle. He was there. And can you not, with me, look back on your life and see and say, hasn't God shepherded you? And let's just take it very practical. Are you full? You have places where you live? You sleep sometimes? Food? And usually it's good? I mean, has he not fed you? Has he not led you? Are you not breathing? And has he not given you good things 
And has he not given you painful things? But has he not been present with you all the way? And that's what Jacob is saying. Now, if Jacob can say that after we've just read his life, I think we can say it too. God has fed me all my life long. He's imminent. He's not only transcendent and unchanging, he's imminent, he's near. That's a mystery that God can be both transcendent over there and at the same time right here. And that mystery is the hope of the Christian. That he is both apart from us and with us. The third one is the most unique. Signaled by the fact that he says, the God who, the God who, and now he says, the angel who. Now this is unique because this is the only time in Genesis that God is directly called an angel. And he is, this is who he's referring to. The, it's, it's impossible not to see. The God, God, angel who, it's the same thing, right? Furthermore, Hosea chapter 12 makes it very clear when he says, he, Jacob, took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel, same word, and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him, the angel. He found him, the angel, in Bethel. And there he, the angel, spoke to us, that is the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. So Hosea lets us know who the angel is here. It's the angel, God. Now, it's not that, though it's kind of unique, but it's also not that unique. Because angel simply means messenger. And sometimes, in matters of profound importance, God is his own messenger. He comes as the angel. But doesn't this, though, immediately draw to mind that Jacob, whereas he was talking about the God of history in the first statement, and now he's talking about the God of his life as the shepherd in the second statement, doesn't it sort of strike you that he seems to be talking about something far more specific than his whole life in the third statement? The angel who redeemed me from all evil. Now, he's not talking about something that will happen, so he's not talking about his death. He doesn't say the angel who will redeem me when I die. Furthermore, he says the angel who redeemed me from all evil. Now, if he means, as the Hebrew word ra'ah can mean, if he means all the bad things, then he's a little confused because he characterized his life as few years of few and evil. Same word. So he can't be saying here, the God who re angel who redeemed me from all evil, that in my life, God as an angel has delivered me from all the bad things. He has to be speaking of something else. Now, I know I'm sort of cooking this with you, and you're probably already there, but does this not phrase like draw you to a specific experience in Jacob's life where he could say, an angel redeemed me? from evil. We're all there, right? It's at the river Jabbok. It's where he wrestles with the angel. So if that's what he's talking about, what does he mean when he says that angel on that night redeemed me from all evil? 
Well, first of all, since he's not talking about his life of evil, he must be talking about some other evil. Well, there is two kinds of evil out there. There's the evil out there, the evil people, the evil circumstances, the evil weather, the evil governments, the evil that there's evil out there, but there is another evil, isn't there? Well, there's actually three kinds of evil. That evil is all influenced and directed by the evil one, the dragon, the serpent, Satan. But there's a third evil that the scriptures constantly talk about. We don't like to talk about it, though the scripture does. It's the evil in my sin nature. Evil within me. We don't like to talk about that because we always like to point out all the other evils out there and ignore this one. But I think because Jacob describes his days as being filled with evil, and then he says, in the past, at some point, angel redeemed me from all evil, that he's referring to this evil. And he is saying, yeah, I wasn't delivered from the evil sons who were vicious, and I wasn't delivered from evil drought that threatened us, and I wasn't delivered necessarily from evil thoughts, you know, the thoughts toward him of his sons and then, then the fear and the pain and the suffering of losing Joseph and the death of his wife. But on that night at the Jabbok River, as Jacob held on to the angel, held on to Yahweh, the Lord God, and said, you bless me. I cannot let you go. And the angel the Lord God says, you're not Jacob, you're Israel. That in that day, in that night, the angel of God, God himself, redeemed Jacob. He delivered him from the evil within. Not that Jacob didn't sin again, not that he didn't even pursue evil later on, but Jacob was delivered from the penalty and the power of evil. And that's his hope to be delivered from the presence of evil in his death. Now, what's also fascinating, and I'm running out of time, is that um, this is the first time in the Pentateuch and the only time in Genesis that the word redeemed is found. Go out. It becomes a major theme throughout Pentateuch and then a major theme throughout the Old Testament and the theme of the New Testament. And this is where it's introduced. And what to be redeemed or goel means is it means to, it has the concept of a transfer of possession. So it was used of land, of those in, 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 in servitude. It was used of um, God uses it, actually a different word, but a synonym of it, uses it for Israel, saying, I redeemed you from Egypt out of the possession of Pharaoh into my possession. So it has this idea of being moved or trans transformed in from one possession to another, usually through the purchase of something. For Pharaoh, it was the purchase of his own firstborn son. <laughs> uh, for the, the land, it was the purchase of the land of the year of Jubilee, 50 years. For the service, servant, it was the purchase of his labor. All those things would, by the purchase of something, he'd be moved from this possession to this possession. And in that sort of embryonic way, Jacob, I believe, is saying, looking back at the end of his life and he's remembering the night when God moved him from him holding on to himself and his right 
And through the wrestling match with the angel, God ripped his hands off and he grabbed a hold of God. And now he moves, he's redeemed. He moves from seeking to possess himself to being possessed by God. He is his. He is delivered from the evil within. So God is the faithful redeemer. How do we think about all this quickly in closing? First of all, overview. Jacob's life is not normally an example to follow, but his death is. I want to die like Jacob. Theologically, God is transcendent, immortal, unchanging, far greater than we could ever imagine. Hope in him. God is imminent, like a shepherd, providentially feeding us. He is far nearer than we realize. God is Redeemer. He is the angel, delivering us from all the evil with alone. He alone saves us. So rest in Him. In a moment, we're going to have communion, and we're going to celebrate redemption, the redemption in Christ. Did you know that the Hebrew people, when they, would, when they had their Passover, which this is an offshoot of for, a, for the church, that they would echo four promises by God with every cup of wine that they drank. And there were four cups they drank in the communion. The first cup, they echoed this promise from Exodus 6, I will bring you out from the burdens of Egypt. They'd drink, they'd eat a little bit. The second cup they would drink, and it would be, I will deliver you from their bondage. The third cup was nicknamed the cup of redemption because it says, I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great judgments. Do you know that when Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper, that he paused on that third cup and he said, now this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The cup of redemption is found in my blood. No longer is it from Egypt, it's from your sin, and it's found in me. And then he promised them, and I'm not going to drink the fourth cup, the cup of consummation, which is, I will take you to me until we drink it together in the kingdom. And so Jesus didn't eat the fourth cup that night. He stopped on the cup of redemption. So as we take this Lord's Supper, look back. Don't just look in. Don't just look at Christ. Look back at Christ in the Old Testament and how he has redeemed us from all evil. Let's pray.